We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, my feet are out. Okay, I'm out. Well, it looks funny out there to see my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, yeah. get back in. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 63 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 5 with Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad. Eight days or bust. Jiminy 5 was the third manned flight of NASA's two-man spacecraft. Its flight was designed to clear many of the hurdles on the road to the first piloted lunar landing. Those hurdles included rendezvous, docking, spacewalking, a precise re-entry, and, of course, long-duration flight of between 8 and 14 days. The 8 to 14 days was the minimum and maximum anticipated lengths of a round trip to the moon. Jiminy 5 was the first to run on fuel cells the first to carry the rendezvous radar, and the first to carry the long-awaited rendezvous evaluation pod. Only two months were to elapse between Gemini 4 and 5, a sign of the progress that NASA was making toward putting spaceflight on somewhat of a routine basis. Let's begin our study of Gemini 5 with what we learned on Gemini 4. Although Gemini 4 was a very successful mission, rendezvous still remained a question mark. NASA Deputy Administrator Siemens asked Langley Research Center to study orbital mechanics, especially the complex decisions on altitude and velocity changes and probable fuel usage both with and without computers. Langley engineers reviewed the Gemini 4 mission results and concluded that the fuel allotted seemed ample for station keeping, but the crew had simply not been adequately trained for the job. But at the time, no one was adequately trained. The differences between motion on Earth and motions in orbit were not intuitively realized or second nature to anyone. Another Gemini 4 post-flight concern was the computer failure. IBM, the subcontractor, was unable to duplicate the failure on a test computer, and the Gemini 4 computer itself worked perfectly through 500 tests in St. Louis. Since the trouble remained a mystery, IBM modified the Gemini 5 computer with a manual switch that allowed areas that might have caused the problem to be bypassed. There were also a number of questions for Gemini 5. First, should a fail-safe re-entry be flown? Fail-safe orbits had been planned for all manned Gemini flights. Missions not slated for rendezvous would use spacecraft thrusters to bring the vehicle into the atmosphere. 
Other flights would depend on the Agena to push the spacecraft into the atmospheric fringes. NASA headquarters had imposed the fail-safe orbit precaution on Gemini 3, whose crew later had little to say about it. But Gemini 4's crew, McDivitt and White, criticized it. They contended saving fuel for the fail-safe re-entry had forced them to limit both operations and experiments. With Gemini 5 slated for 8 days and 17 experiments, Houston wanted to eliminate the fail-safe orbit. Since the retro rockets had fired as advertised, even after spending 4 days in space, NASA Associate Administrator Mueller agreed. The second question, should there be an EVA with Gemini 5? White's successful EVA on Gemini 4 was going to be a hard act to follow. There was little to be gained from merely repeating it, but the environmental system was not ready for anything more advanced, and there were other reasons for skipping the EVA in the next several missions. McDivitt and White had trouble stowing everything for re-entry. Gemini 5's eight-day mission would produce even more garbage that would have to be stowed. In addition, the Gemini 5 pilots had been campaigning vigorously for more comfort on orbit, such as wearing their helmets, goggles, and oxygen masks, but not their suits. The astronauts lost that battle and later won the G4C extravehicular suits that had been bought for them before the decision to fly EVA on Gemini 4. With no reason for repeating the Gemini 4 EVA, Mueller and MSC Deputy Director William Snyder decided there would be no EVA on the next three missions. The third question for Gemini 5, could the crew be trained soon enough to shorten the launch interval from three to two months? Shortening the intervals between missions was part of the problem in getting the crew ready to fly. In September 1964, when plans for speeding up the flight schedule were first being studied, flight operations and crew training had emerged as the most likely stumbling blocks. When the study was completed and accepted in January 1965, Chimney 5 still did not have a crew and training time was getting short. The answer was NASA would give it their best shot. Now let's consider the crew for Gemini 5. On February 8, 1965, Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad were selected as the prime crew with Neil Armstrong and Elliot C. as the backups. You can probably recall Gordon Cooper was an old-timer in NASA's manned spaceflight program. He was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts selected five years earlier. He had already spent 34 hours in space in 1963 as the astronaut of Mercury Atlas 9, also known as Faith 7, which was the last of the Mercury series. Cooper was the first American to sleep in space during his 34-hour mission and was the last American to be launched alone to conduct an entirely solo orbital mission. For more information on Gordo, listen to episodes 16, 17, and 37. 
Peter Conrad was born on June 2, 1930, in Philadelphia to Charles and Francis Conrad. His family was financially successful at real estate and banking. His mother wanted very much to name her son Peter, but Charles insisted that his first son bear his name. In a compromise between two strong-willed people, the name on his birth certificate read Charles Conrad, Jr. But, to his mother and virtually all who knew him, he was Peter. When he was 21, his fiancé's father called him Pete, and thereafter Conrad adopted it. For the rest of his life, to virtually everyone, he was known as Pete. The Great Depression wiped out the Conrad's family fortune, just as it had those of so many others. In 1942, the family lost their manor home in Philadelphia and then moved into a small carriage house paid for by Francis's brother. Eventually, Charles Conrad Sr., broke down by financial failures, left his family. From the beginning, Pete Conrad was clearly a bright, intelligent boy, but he continually struggled with his schoolwork. He suffered from dyslexia, a condition which was little understood at the time. Pete Conrad attended the Haverford School, a private academy in Haverford, Pennsylvania, that previous generations of Conrads had attended. Even after his financial downturn, his uncle, Egerton, supported his continued schooling at Haverford. However, Pete's dyslexia continued to frustrate his academic efforts. After he failed most of his 11th grade exams, Haverford expelled him from school. But Frances Conrad refused to believe that her son was unintelligent and set about finding him a suitable school. She found the Darrow School in New Lebanon, New York, there, Conrad learned how to apply a systems approach to learning and thus found a way to work around his dyslexia. Despite having to repeat the 11th grade, Conrad so excelled at Darrow that after his graduation in 1949, he was not only admitted to Princeton, but he also was awarded a full Navy ROTC scholarship. Starting when he was 15 years old, Conrad worked during the summertime at the Powley Airfield near Powley, Pennsylvania, bartering lawn mowing, sweeping, and other odd jobs for airplane flights and occasional instruction time. He learned more about the mechanics and working of aircraft and aircraft engines, and then he graduated to minor maintenance work. When he was 16, he drove almost 160 kilometers to help a flight instructor whose airplane had been forced to make an emergency landing. Conrad repaired the plane single-handedly. Thereafter, the instructor gave Conrad the flight lessons that he needed to earn his pilot's license even before he graduated from high school. Conrad continued flying while in college, not only keeping his pilot license, but also earning an instrument flight rating. He earned his B.S. in aeronautical engineering from Princeton in 1953, 
and his automatic commission as an ensign in the Navy as a naval ROTC graduate. Conrad became a naval aviator and a fighter pilot. He excelled in Navy flight school, and he served for several years as an aircraft carrier pilot in the Navy. Conrad also served as a flight instructor in the Navy flight school along the Gulf of Mexico. Next, Conrad applied for and was accepted by the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School at Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Patuxent, Maryland, where he was assigned as a project test pilot. In early 1959, Conrad was summoned to Washington, D.C., for a series of interviews and physical and psychological tests in support of Project Mercury. Conrad and his fellow candidates underwent several days of what they considered to be invasive, demeaning, and unnecessary medical and psychological testing at the Loveless Respiratory Research Institute in New Mexico. However, unlike fellow candidates, Conrad rebelled against the regime. During an ink block test, he told the psychiatrist that one blot card revealed a mating encounter, complete with lurid details. When shown a blank card, he turned it around, pushed it back, and replied, It's upside down. Then, when he was asked to deliver a stool sample to the on-site lab, he placed it in a gift box... <laughs> and tied a red ribbon around it. Eventually, he decided that he had had enough. After dropping his full enema bag on the desk of the clinic's commanding officer, he walked out. Therefore, his initial application to NASA was denied with the notation, not suitable for long-duration flight. Ironically, two of Conrad's four space missions would set new records for long-duration flight. Three years later, when NASA announced its search for a second group of astronauts, Mercury veteran Alan Shepard, who knew Conrad from their time as naval aviators and test pilots, approached Conrad and persuaded him to reapply. This time, the medical tests were less offensive, and Conrad was selected to join NASA. Conrad joined NASA as part of the second group of astronauts known as the New Nine on September 17, 1962. He was regarded as one of the best pilots in the group. He was among the first of his group to be assigned a Gemini mission. Here's a clip on Conrad. For the next manned Gemini flight, Gordo Cooper is teamed with a slim, slight bundle of brains and fun known to his friends as Pete Conrad. He barely missed appointment as one of the original seven. Two trademarks identify him at once to the public. The space like a dash between his front teeth and the fact that he is one of the few Princeton men to be tattooed. And when I came in the ready room, uh, everybody knew that I'd been trying for the program, you know, and they said, you had a person-to-person long-distance phone call from Houston, you know, and I said, uh, yeah, sure, Charlie. And sure enough, it was deaconing. He asked me if I wanted to come fly for NASA. So, of course, I was, I was so excited I didn't know what to do. I almost wrecked myself driving home in the car. Now moving along to the hardware for Gemini 5. 
In April 1965, fabrication of the Gemini 5 spacecraft was completed by McDonnell. This was only weeks after Cooper, Conrad, Armstrong, and C began their training. The capsule was tested through May in the altitude chamber and finally delivered to Cape Kennedy, Florida on June 19th. The Titan II booster assigned to launch the mission was finished in Baltimore, Maryland, and accepted by the U.S. Air Force by the end of May. On June 7th, the Titan II booster was installed on Pad 19, followed by the Gemini 5 space capsule on July 7th. The planned launch schedule was for August 1st. Of course, by this time, the astronauts were thinking about a nickname for their spacecraft. But NASA headquarters now officially refused to allow nicknames for Gemini spacecraft. However, Gordo Cooper was not so easy put off. Pete Conrad's father-in-law had willed a model covered wagon, which inspired Cooper with the idea for a new patch that would depict a covered wagon emblazoned with the legend, Eight Days or Bust. A personal appeal to NASA Administrator Webb led, after much discussion, to approval of the Cooper patch, but Webb greatly disliked the motto because he believed if the mission did not go the full eight days, people would say it had busted. So Webb did not allow the nickname. Interestingly enough, Cooper's second choice for the nickname was Ladybird. This was nixed as well because it happened to be the nickname of the then First Lady, wife of President Johnson, who was often referred to as Lady Bird Johnson. To Webb, the nickname Lady Bird could possibly be misinterpreted as an insult and thus provoke unwelcome controversy. With the nickname issue settled, we now move on to one of Gemini 5's chief objectives, the practice rendezvous with the evaluation pod. This became more urgent after the doubts raised in Gemini 4. Cooper and Conrad devoted a large part of their training time to preparing for this exercise, which now seemed a crucial prelude to Gemini 6. The practice rendezvous was planned to simulate as closely as possible the terminal phase of a rendezvous with an Agena. Another requirement for the first rendezvous flight that Conrad and Cooper rehearsed was a simultaneous launch countdown, which involved their spacecraft on pad 19 and an Atlas Agena on pad 14. Although there would be no double launch for the Gemini 5 mission, it would give the launch crew and flight controllers some experience in launching two vehicles at precise times. On July 22nd, the Gemini 5 crew went through the motions of a double launch, including five holds for propellant tanking, a faulty command panel switch, spacecraft problems, erratic range sequencer performance, and spurious pulses received at Lockheed's ground stations. The demonstration lasted 867 minutes instead of the scheduled 505 minutes, but it did give the needed practice. When the test ended, the lowered launch pad erector could not be raised. 
This left Cooper and Conrad stuck in the capsule. They were finally rescued with the cherry picker. The cherry picker was a cabin on the tip of a crane that had been used in the Mercury program, and coincidentally, Cooper had insisted that the cherry picker be included in the Gemini program. Riding down in the cherry picker gave Cooper a real sense of vindication. By this time, crew fatigue was setting in. Since their assignment in February of 1965, Cooper, Conrad, and their backup crews had put in punishing 16-hour workdays plus weekends to meet the tight launch target of August 1st. The head of flight crew operations, Deke Slayton, realized they needed more time. After consulting with senior management, he succeeded in delaying the target launch date to August 19th. On July 29th, the usual launch reviews began with the Spacecraft Readiness Review, followed by the Launch Vehicle Readiness Review on August 16th, Mission Readiness Review on August 17th, and Flight Safety Review on August 18th. On August 19th, launch day, Everett Christensen of NASA Headquarters assumed the role of Mission Director. Although thunderstorms threatened that morning, the operations crew decided to push on and launch if possible. But the predicted storm welled over the pad area and similarly to Gemini 2, a lightning strike near the power facilities caused the spacecraft computer to waver. Finally, the launch attempt was scrubbed with 10 minutes remaining on the countdown clock. The erector was raised and the crew was helped out of the craft. Propellants were drained, pyrotechnics removed or diffused, and a 48-hour recycle begun. On Saturday, August 21st, Gunter Vint, the McDonnell pad leader, hustled Cooper and Conrad into their couches. Aboard Gemini 5, Cooper turned to Conrad and asked, You ready, rookie? Conrad, white as a sheet, replied that he was nervous. But how could Conrad, the decorated test pilot who had flown every supersonic jet the Navy owned, be scared? Conrad milked the silence in the cabin for a few seconds, then burst out laughing and said, Gotcha! with his trademark toothy grin. Precisely at 9 a.m., Cooper and Conrad felt the modified Titan II start them on a far longer journey than any made by a bygone continent-crossing covered wagon. Here's the launch beginning at T-minus 4 minutes. This is Gemini Launch Control, now T-minus 4 minutes and 15 seconds and counting. Astronauts Cooper and Conrad still reporting the status of their spacecraft as go. We continue our checks in the blockhouse. We have now tied in the launch vehicle, the spacecraft, the control center in Houston, and the Air Force Eastern Test Range. All is go at the present time. Now coming up on three minutes and 50 seconds and counting. This is Gemini Launch Control. Three minutes and 22 seconds and counting. We're checking with a computer update. This is the spacecraft computer to ensure that it is synchronized for the launch. T-minus three minutes and counting. T-minus three. The voice you hear coming in is Jack King the voice of launch control at Cape Kennedy. 
Immediately after launch, the spokesman will be Paul Haney from the Mission Control Center at Houston, Texas. Houston actually controls this mission. Two Control minutes. now, T-minus two minutes, 24 two seconds minutes and counting. We have just received a go from the range. The range is cleared to launch. So T-minus two minutes and counting. We have confirmation that our computer has been updated in the spacecraft. All systems still go on the Gemini 5 countdown. T-minus one minute and 30 seconds and counting. T-minus 90 seconds and counting. All systems still looking good. As we approach the final seconds of the countdown, the Titan II launch vehicle will ignite. The two engines in the first eight booster will ignite as we reach zero in the countdown. Three seconds later, after numerous parameters have been checked, the launch vehicle will be released. We will have liftoff some three seconds after ignition. Now, one minute and counting. T-minus 50 seconds and counting. T-minus 35 seconds. seconds. We're now primarily on an automatic sequence in the blockhouse, monitoring the final functions as they occur. T-minus 15. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Titan II engines as pressure is down 25 is go for staging and event that should occur in approximately 20 seconds. That's the stage cutoff that Paul Haney's talking about. 
That's when those two engines cut off. That should be in about 10 seconds from now. Those engines cut off just a the load, the command load coming up from the ground has been received. There, you saw the, we have staging. You saw the staging there. You saw the plane view go off on our television monitors and right on the mark. That was booster separation. The Page two spacecraft is now alone out there. on the ground. Looks good to the people in the spacecraft. The booster, the 90 feet of the Titan II booster, has done its work well. It has been cut off uh, to float in its own orbit. Second stage ignition has taken place. Our guidance systems are solid and green all the way. All other values quite nominal. Guidance system means the radio guidance is uh, correct the, uh, in function. It went in at 2 minutes and 48 seconds, about uh, half a minute ago. Second stage cutoff now comes in another uh, 15 seconds. Sergeant says everything's go. Three minutes, 30 seconds. The telemetry data shows the flight is progressing on exactly the planned rate. spacecraft uh, with its second stage uh, booster uh, functioning uh, is going well. Four minutes into the flight, four minutes, our velocity 9,600 miles an hour, G-forces after staging drop back to 2.2. Second stage directors pull the, all the flight controllers here in the control center. They all give us a go for sustainer engine cutoff. Second stage cutoff uh, and the dropping of the second stage of the 94th booster. Four minutes, 30 comes. seconds. Four minutes, 30 seconds into the flight. In another minute. That's 100,000 pounds of thrust in that second stage. The second stage and the spacecraft are now under the control of Cooper and Conrad. They can maneuver uh, to a certain degree at this point. up on five minutes. Our velocity, 13,675 miles per hour. G-forces, 3.8. G-force, of course, is the gravity force. They weigh and have a G.8. 0.8 or 80% of the required velocity to put Gemini 5 in orbit. The required velocity of 17,500 miles an hour. Velocity calculated that the second stage cutoff should occur in less than 10 seconds. The voice of Capcom was Jim McDivitt. Here is the send-off he gave to Cooper and Conrad at launch. Gemini 5, have a nice trip. Drive carefully. Yes, have a nice trip and drive carefully. The preparations for the launch of flight GT5 have gone so well that there's not one single second of flight day launch hold. Years later, Jim Conrad's wife Nancy wrote that her late husband compared the instant of liftoff to a bomb going off under him, then a shake, rattle, and roll like a 55 Buick blasting down a bumpy gravel road. The launch was smooth enough, but then came the pogo bumps, also known as axial oscillations. 
They lasted about 13 seconds and were measured at 0.38 G, which exceeded the permitted 0.25 G. The pogo stopped just before staging. The cause was traced to a pre-launch procedure. In any case, six minutes after launch, Gemini 5 entered orbit perfectly with a perigee of 163 kilometers and an apogee of 349 kilometers. Reaching orbit made Cooper the first man to chalk up two Earth-orbiting missions. Remember, Gus Grissom's first flight was suborbital on Liberty Bell 7 before commanding the orbital Gemini 3. Within minutes, Conrad reported problems with the fuel cells. The tank supplying oxygen to the two fuel cells was losing pressure. It wasn't critical yet, but the flight director called for a constant watch on the telemetry. If the pressure fell too low, the fuel cells could stop producing electricity, which would necessitate bringing the astronauts back to Earth early. But, for the time being, the flight continued as scheduled. The first major event on the mission was the deployment of the Rendezvous Evaluation Pod, which was nicknamed the Little Rascal, after which Cooper would execute a rendezvous test, honing in on its radar beacon and flashing lights. Before the pod could even be released, as Gemini 5 neared the end of its first orbit, Conrad reported that the pressure in the fuel cells was dropping rapidly. Because of the mission's length, the supply of oxygen and hydrogen for the fuel cell was a concern. Cooper intended to operate the cells at the lowest possible pressure. Flight control told him to switch on the oxygen heater, which was supposed to raise the pressure. But to his surprise, the needle continued to drop. It seemed that the oxygen supply heater element had failed. Nonetheless, at 2 hours, 13 minutes, Cooper yawed the spacecraft 90 degrees and ejected the rendezvous pod as they passed over Africa on their second orbit. Cooper turned the spacecraft to the rear, flipped on the radar, and got an immediate signal. The radar scale showed the pod moving off at a relative speed of 2 meters per second. Conrad had expected it to drift away and trail behind the spacecraft, but to his surprise, it went out to the side. Finally, it started to follow them as they thought it should. Next, the flight plan called for Gemini 5 to maneuver to a point 7 miles below and 16 miles behind the pod. However, the oxygen heater had still not raised the pressure in the fuel cells. Gemini 5 was out of communications range, so Cooper had to make a decision without help from ground stations. As the pressure had fallen below 200 pounds per square inch, never having seen a fuel cell working at a pressure that low, he was afraid it might fail entirely, and he reluctantly decided to power down, which would reduce the load on the fuel cells. Without electrical power, rendezvous with the pod was out of the question. Chimney 5's crew now wondered if, as Administrator Webb had feared, the mission had busted. Would Mission Director Christensen continue the flight or have them come home?
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 63 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Gemini 5 with Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad, Part 1. Space Rocket History is a proud member of the History Podcasters and the Tech Podcasting Network. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, it was a pleasure bringing it to you. Thanks for sticking around and staying with me on this journey. I really appreciate it. I left that one in kind of a cliffhanger, didn't I? Will Gemini 5 be a bust? Hmm. Be sure to come back next week for part two. Well, what did you think about Pete Conrad? He gift-wrapped his stool specimen. (laughs) I guess you would have to approach birthday presents at the Conrad house with extreme caution. Okay. (laughs) Okay, if you'd like more information on episode 63, I posted some images on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Make sure you check those out. I was very pleased to receive a donation from Alex from Palm Springs this week. I wanted to say thank you very much to Alex for supporting the podcast. I really do appreciate it. If you would like to donate, it's very simple. Just go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Look for the orange donate button on the top of the right column of the page. Click on it, and you are on your way, and I do appreciate donations very much. If you haven't been to the Facebook page yet or haven't been following me on Twitter, I want to encourage you to do so. You'll get updates and insights on the next podcast, as well as some personal updates occasionally. And the links for both Facebook and Twitter are on the homepage. And my email address is mike at spacerockethistory.com. If you'd like to be notified when my next podcast is posted, you can sign up for the email list on the homepage, or you can sign up for the RSS feed by clicking the little orange box. Please share the podcast with someone you know this week so they can listen to, and feel free to post a link to the homepage or a particular podcast anywhere you can. Hope to have episode 64 ready by next Thursday. We will finish Jiminy 5. So long for now.